Hello, 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 friends, and welcome to the She Finds Joy podcast, where we reclaim the super shiny lights that burn in each of us. I'm Kim Strobel, your truth-telling, real-talk happiness coach who believes in the power of showing up as our flossom selves, even and especially, my friends, when it comes to working through our hard stuff. After all, when we're playing in our arenas of bigness, life gets better as we get bolder. So buckle up for the no BS, zero fluff advice that gives you the small steps for big joy. One of the best things about She Finds Joy is our community. So be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other women who are creating more joy in their lives, just like you. You can find us at kimstrobel.com forward slash she finds joy. All right, let's dive in to today's episode. Here we go. Hello, my friends, and I, as your happiness coach, am super excited to talk to you about this crazy topic called happiness. Where does it come from? How do we get more of it? What is the research behind it? I am here to give you all the deets because I have studied this topic for the last 20 years. Now, I want to back up for a minute. I want to let you know a little bit about my story and how I even became the happiness coach. Well, I'm pretty sure the idea of becoming a happiness coach was birthed in my heart and soul. I'm pretty sure it was divine destiny. But to be honest with you all, the idea was born out of adversity, out of my own trauma, out of my own suffering, and out of my own darkness. And I find that to be true of so many people who decide that they have a mission in life, that they want to impact other lives because they take their suffering and, you know, we get to decide if we're going to be a victim of our suffering, which is super easy to do at times, or if we're going to rise up and be the warrior. And so I pretty much suffered from anxiety and panic since childhood. You know, I was that little girl who worried constantly to the point where I made myself physically ill. You know, I look back at my childhood and I was just a nervous Nelly. I remember in the fifth grade, um, (laughs) my mom and dad, who were super capable parents, wanted to take their three kids to Disney World. And I was the oldest. I had two younger brothers. And I went into this like giant worried state where I was telling my parents, like, I don't want to go to Disney World. I don't want to go to Disney World. And they're like, why? And I said, because I'm worried that my brothers will get lost. And, you know, Disney World is super big. And what if someone takes them? And what if someone, and I just, I was the, I have a brain that overthinks, overanalyzes and catastrophizes everything. And of course my parents were like, this is strange. This is not normal. Um, I think I finally told them, here's the deal. I will go to Disney World, but only if I can have one of those leashes. that you attach to your wrist. And I was going to make sure that my brothers had that attached to their wrist. And the other end of that was attached to mine. Now, come on, what fifth grader feels like they are totally responsible for their younger siblings? 
so much so that I didn't even trust my parents to hold on to the other end of the leash. And so I remember my mom took me to counseling and got me to a place where, you know, I could go to Disney World and not be in such an extreme state of worry. But when I look back through my childhood, I see that that continued to manifest in other ways. For example, I remember in junior high, I developed kind of this thing where if my dad wasn't home by 6 p.m. on the dot, I would be in the bathroom feeling nauseous, feeling sick, convincing myself that he had had a terrible wreck and he was dead and he wasn't coming home. And that caused this whole thing. Like my dad started coming home five minutes early, so I wouldn't go into such kind of a state of mind. Um, of course, then I caught on to that, right? So then it was like, oh, if he's not home at 555, now I'm worried. And so long story short, when I look back at my childhood, I can kind of see this history of catastrophizing and worrying incessantly. In fact, so much so that when I was in high school, um, I was this like kind of coming into myself, feeling confident. I was an athlete. Um, I'd gotten over like the middle school stuff. And I had this exuberant personality that was really starting to come out, a little bit of my extroversion. And then my sophomore year, I started having these terrible episodes where I would be sitting in class and just within a, like a half of a second, all of a sudden the walls would feel like they were coming in. Um, I would feel kind of confusion, like I knew where I was, but I didn't know where I was. I knew my name was Kim Sablehouse, but I didn't know why my name was Kim Sablehouse. And it was like everything in my brain just became kind of jumbled and I felt like I was going to pass out. Um, I would get super hot. I would start to shake all over. And so I would ask to leave the room and this continued to happen and it got worse and worse. Um, you know, they diagnosed me with low blood sugar, thinking it was that. Then they thought I had this thing called complex partial seizures. And it really became this huge thing that dominated my life for I don't know, like the next eight years or so, because I don't know if any of you know about panic disorder, but that is what I suffer from. Um, it is an anxiety disorder. It's very genetic. It kind of runs through my family, but nobody knew what it was. So when I started having these episodes in high school, I mean, we didn't know what was wrong with me. I all of a sudden struggled to like drive my car to school and I struggled to be in school and I struggled to be trapped in a classroom. And then the next thing you know, I didn't want to go to basketball practice unless one of my parents was there in case I would have an attack. And so for anybody who now knows about panic attacks or for those of you that don't, I want to explain what this feels like because if you've never had one, it's, you'll never understand the terror that comes with it. So the way that I describe it is having a panic attack is similar to if I were to put you on a train track. And I was to tell you, you are going to stand on this train track and there is a train that is going to come at you at 300 miles per hour and you are not to move. But I promise you that that train will stop within one inch of your nose. You are 100% safe. You will not be harmed. So picture yourself for a minute on that train track and picture that incident. You know, your body would start to sweat, your heart would start to beat, your body would shake, you'd feel like you were going to pass out. It would be extreme terror. Well, for someone who has panic attacks, that is what it feels like. 
but the issue becomes even bigger because our brain can't attach a catastrophe to why we're feeling like that. So for example, for you, if you were on a train track and you were almost hit by a train or you were almost in a car accident or someone was holding you at gunpoint, your brain could at least logically say, yeah, I feel like this because I'm in this situation. But for those of us who don't have panic attacks, we can feel like that instantly. And it can be in our car driving, it can be in our home, it can be walking around the block. And so then what happens is that leaves our brain feeling really bewildered. And then we start to think we're crazy, like we're weak, like what's wrong with us? And so for me, what I started to do then is I started to try to always stay in my safe zones. So like if I was with my mom or my dad, then I felt safe because if I would start to have an attack, I knew that they could take care of me. And so what I began to do over the next several years of my life is just really limit myself. And I held the struggle inside because nobody knew what it was. It's not like we were talking about anxiety disorders or panic disorders in the eighties or early nineties. And so I had immense shame around it. Because let's be honest, you know, here I am 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. And being at home by myself is a struggle. Walking to my mailbox at times is a struggle. Getting in my car and driving to work five minutes is a struggle. Going into Walmart is a struggle. And I tell people this story because I had such immense shame around who I was. I really, in my mind, I thought to myself, you are so weak. You are so flawed, Kim. You are crazy. You are nuts. This is not normal. You know, two-year-olds can function better than you. I mean, let's be honest, two-year-olds can go to Walmart and they can go around the aisle away from mommy with no problem. And there I am, a 20-something woman who like can't be out of sight from my husband or my mom at Walmart in case I have an attack. And so this led to just this extreme darkness. Basically, I felt like I had this inner spirit that was full of life and vibrant and confident and energetic. And then all of a sudden, I got plagued by this thing called panic disorder, which by the way, I finally did get a diagnosis of it when I was about 21 or 22. And let me just tell you, that was a relief in itself. But I really had just so much darkness and so much inner suffering in my life that I really felt like, and it makes me kind of emotional even to talk about it. Every time I tell this story, I get emotional because no one knows how hard it is when you feel like this. For me, I felt like every five to 10 minutes at times of every single day was such a struggle for me. Um, and the simplest things that everybody around me could do, I could not do. Um, of course, I had fears of like, you know, I can't even take care of myself. How am I ever going to be a, a mother? Um, I went to college and I quit school after a year because, of course, you know, I was away from my safety of my mom and dad and my home and I couldn't handle it. And I was having panic attacks all day long and we still didn't know what was wrong with me. But I had this moment, you all, when... I remember my husband at the time had just left for work and he would usually leave about 15 or 20 minutes before me. Um, and that would become a super anxious time for me because I would be left alone. And then what if I start having these feelings? What if, you know, I'm going to pass out? What if I'm going to go unconscious? And so that was always a really difficult time for me. And I remember one particular incident, and I tell this story, by the way, on stages across the country. 
And it's always a hard story to tell because I do remember the pain and I remember the helplessness of this moment. But I just went to the bathroom and I closed the door. And I don't know if y'all remember in the early 90s, but the burgundy and forest green decor was big time, right? So I'm in my burgundy painted wall bathroom with my burgundy and forest green shower curtain and my forest green bath mat. And I do remember curling up. Um, I do. I remember curling up in the fetal position. And I remember feeling the soft feel of the plush forest green bath mat on my cheek. And I remember pleading with God. And I'll just tell you, right or wrong, if you judge me, you judge me. But I just told him, like, I don't have the courage to take my own life. But I really need you to take it. I really want you to take my life because I need to not have to endure this suffering all of the time. And of course, right, you start to judge yourself for even having that thought. But I do remember laying there. And I'm not going to apologize for getting emotional, guys. I didn't think that I would (laughs) as I sit in my little podcast room telling this story. But it's an important part of how I became Kim Strobel, the happiness coach. So bear with me here. I also remember... And I don't know if it was a gut instinct. I don't know if I sort of heard something. I just remember it was some version of the words, Kim, you are made for more. You are not done. So get up off that bath mat and get yourself some help. I don't know what was different about that particular time, but... Perhaps I was being spoken to by God or universal intelligence or a higher power. I I do believe I was. Um, But I actually went to my regular um, medical doctor. I remember walking in there and feeling so ashamed to explain this kind of hidden secret that I had. And at the time, I think I just got really lucky. He happened to be kind of up and up on the anxiety research. And he said, Kim, I think what you have is panic disorder. And he explained about the neural connections in the brain and the serotonin levels and not jumping over the synapse. And he put me on Zoloft. And I'm just going to tell you all, that changed my life. By getting on an antidepressant, that helped me not have the panic attacks as often. And to be honest, eventually I I was completely panic attack free for a very long period. Little by little, I started to get pieces of the real Kim back. Um, I also did extreme cognitive behavioral therapy. I did homopathy and I really began to take charge of my life. And the way that I birthed myself as a happiness coach is I literally dug into the personal development field that was just coming alive in a really big way. I started to read every single self-help book I could get my hands on and I became on fire with all of it, with learning about it, with implementing it. And so really my life began to take a turn. You know, I got myself back in college. I was working full-time, going to college full-time. And I really started to reclaim the deepest parts of who I was and how I wanted to show up in the world. And for me, you know, we can fast forward now 25 years later and see that this is exactly how the happiness coach was born. Because what I found is 
this is not just about me and my story of panic disorder, but every single one of us has struggle, suffering, darkness, painful things that have happened in our life. And this is how I know as women, we also have the ability to rise above those things. And what I mean by that is there are so many times I have been angry at having panic disorder. And do I think that panic disorder sent me on a totally different path? I 100% do. Um, I was mad for a long time because, you know, I didn't get to go to Indiana University. I didn't get to move to the big city. I didn't get to do all the things that my inner self wanted to do because I was plagued by these panic attacks. But I also know that when I look back at this, I see that the person I am today would never have evolved to being the happiness coach and would never be on such a strong mission to help every single woman find her joy, find her happiness by overcoming the hard stuff. And that's what I'm really on a mission because it doesn't matter what our hard stuff is. And we don't have to do this thing called comparative suffering, right? We don't have to be like, well, my suffering isn't as bad as someone else's because, you know, theirs is so much worse. We also have to stop doing that, right? Because pain is pain. Suffering is suffering. Darkness is darkness. And none of it feels good. And we don't have to not allow ourselves to have the feelings we have around our suffering just because someone else has suffered so much more than us. You know, Brene Brown talks about this. She calls it comparative suffering. And so what I know is that I have the ability to connect with people because I can be the woman on stage dressed in her, you know, super dress, her three inch heels, totally made up, doing a motivational speaking gig anywhere across the country in front of thousands of people. And I can be that girl showing up in a really big way in my life, but I can also know that I am still the girl who has struggled. And still to this day, I still sometimes struggle. I mean, I had a relapse of panic disorder last fall and I had to go back. I had to go back and do the dang work, right? To get myself through that. And so what I do know is that we can use our challenges or our adversities and we can be defined by those for the rest of our lives or we can decide to rise up and be the warrior in our lives. And what I've come to understand is that both parts of me matter, right? I can be Kim who is knocking it out of the ballpark traveling across the country, doing motivational speaking gigs for conferences, leadership teams, corporate schools, but I can also be okay that I am a woman who also has struggles, but I can be really proud that I don't let those define who I am. And so that's really the story of how the happiness coach was birthed. I really believe that, you know, as hard as my struggle has been, it's also my mission so that each and every woman knows that we are allowed to step outside of our stories. And so how does this play into happiness? Well, 
let me just go ahead and give you some of the happiness research. So all of us have what's called a set baseline happiness level. And this comes from Sonia Lubermiski. Um, Sean Aker talks about this, but it's basically a baseline or kind of default happiness level that each of us have. And what happens is we fluctuate. So for example, your baseline happiness level might be here and maybe mine is a little bit higher or lower than yours. And so what happens is you and I go out and get a new Kate Spade purse or a new pair of shoes, or we get a new car or a new house or a new job. And our happiness level does go up for a period of time. But what we know from the research is that it almost always goes back to its default. Now, as hard as this is to believe, we also know the opposite to be true. Brain science straight out of Harvard University, University of Pennsylvania, shows us that our brain and in our lives, we can actually endure really terrible things, traumatic events, loss, grief, all of these things. And our happiness level will dip for a period of time, but almost always within a certain amount of time, it will come back to its default. And if we think about this, we see this to be true, right? We see people who endure really hard things and somehow they go on eventually living life, they have a happy life, and then we see other people experiencing the same type of traumatic things and they never come out of it. And so what we know is the brain does, according to science, have this uncanny kind of resilient ability to go back to its default after a period of time. I remember even reading a study, they had done a study around quadriplegics and they found something like between two and three years after the accident, after they had lost the use of their limbs, that many of them were able to reset back to their happiness level before the accident. They were able to go on and live a fulfilling, joy-filled life. And I know it's really hard to wrap our brains around that, but for me, I think of Christopher Reeves. I mean, I remember, you know, this happened to him and he continued to get extreme meaning, happiness, and joy out of his life. And so you might be asking yourself, well, where does this baseline happiness level come from? How do we get it? Can we increase it? Here's what the research says. The research says that your baseline happiness level, that 50% of it is genetic. So 50% of your baseline happiness level is genetic. It comes from your mom or your dad or a mixture of both. And so many times when I tell people this, some of them hang their heads and they think to themselves, like, I'm so screwed. But we do see this to be genetic, right? It's like some of us were born to come into this world with this super shiny personality. We're able to handle challenges so much better than everyone else. And then there's those of us who are walking around with hives or, you know, feeling the pressure constantly from our external circumstances. And so there is a genetic disposition to this, you know, just like there's a genetic disposition towards, you know, your weight, right? Like some of us are born into this world with these super skinny genetic genes. And then others of us look at a French fry and pack on the pounds. I mean, there is a genetic tendency to this and it comes from your mom or your dad or a mixture of both but that's just 50% so if you think of it as a pie chart 10% of your long-term happiness 
get this, are you ready? Only 10% of your long-term happiness comes from your external circumstances. What do I mean when I'm talking external circumstances? I'm talking about what kind of money you make, what kind of car you drive, what kind of home you live in, whether you're married, single, divorced, or widowed, whether you have kids or you don't have kids. All of those kind of external circumstances really only take up about 10% and contribute only about 10% to your long-term happiness. Now, I have to throw this in because I do real talk and I always ask people, I'm like, hey, how many of you are parents? Of course, you know, I'm a parent too. And I'm like, just so you know, the happiness research says that you become a little bit unhappier when you become a parent. Why is this? Well, let's be honest, because you're stressed out for the rest of your life, right? Now, here's the deal. I'm super happy I was able to become a parent. I'm super happy I have children. Um, they bring extreme joy and meaning into my life. But there is a level of stress and worry that does come with that. So I always like to laugh in and let people know that. So if 10% is circumstantial, okay, because we all, we all let it be way more than 10%, right? Like we all say when we can finally land this job, when we can finally make this kind of money, when I can finally lose this weight, when I can finally find a partner, I will be happier. And we all let it take up way more than 10% of the pie. You know, I'm super guilty of this. Just to give you like a small example of how I have let the 10% take up more of the pie, I'm going to go back to this past winter when my son's basketball team won the sectional championship. It was the first time in 26 years, Tell City High School boys basketball, they brought home the sectional title. And let me tell you, in our little small town of Tell City, that was a moment. Um, and so then we went to the regional, we played the number one team that morning, and we won, we won. And then we played that night for the regional title and we lost. We lost to a team that I think we would have beat 15 times in a row, but it it just happened. And of course, that team went all the way to state. Now, for those of you who know me, I'm a little competitive. And I'm just going to let you know that for two straight weeks after that, I let it rob way more than 10% of my happiness. I mean, finally, my husband was like, Kim, you're going to have to let it go. We didn't win. We didn't go to state. We're never going to state. Um, but that's like superficial. You know, that's a superficial example. But I'm just telling you that many times we let small and big things take way more than 10% of our long-term happiness. And so part of my mission is going to be to re-educate us about what does bring us more happiness. And so what I want you to walk away knowing right now, just to summarize, is that 50% of your happiness is genetic, 10% of your long-term happiness is your external circumstances. So if you're letting an external circumstance still more than 10% of your joy for any length of time, then that is 100% on you, my sister friend. Um, you know, obviously we have certain situations, we have illnesses 
or traumatic events. And of course they rob more than 10% and they, they rightfully do. But what we're talking about is this long-term happiness. And some of us let circumstances steal more than 10% of our happiness for a super long time. And that's where we have to take 100% responsibility for our life. So that leaves 40% of the pie chart left. And this is the part that I've studied, researched, investigated for the last 15 or 20 years. This is the part that gets me super excited is that every human being, every human being has the ability to increase their happiness levels by up to 40%. Isn't that exciting, my friends? And so these are happiness habits and they are a part of my daily life. And I tell people all of the time, do I have like crappy things happening in my life? Of course. Do I have challenges? Of course I do. But I also have got myself to a place where I wake up almost every single day, folks, excited to live my life. I have learned how to overcome hard things and still find my joy and still find my happiness. And that's what I want for each and every woman. I want all of us to know that we have the right to claim it and that we can go through hard things and we still can raise our happiness levels. We still can live a more joyful life. And, you know, that's part of my story. That's part of me telling you how the happiness coach was birthed because, you know, I'm not sunshine, unicorns, glitter, and sprinkles all of the time. Um, and I think it's really important for people to know that. It's really important to understand that my mission of impacting women and empowering them in a really big way was born out of adversity. It was born out of darkness. And it is exactly the reason why I now coach women on how to claim, actually reclaim, because it's inside of us, how to reclaim and co-create their life and to really create a life that is everything they want it to be and more. So I will be talking in future episodes about how do we increase those happiness levels? How do we increase by up to 40%? What kinds of things contribute to that? But what I want to really end by saying is this, we have a right to claim the goodness in our life. We are not flawed. We are not inherently bad because we've had struggles or traumas or sufferings or made mistakes. These things do not get to steal us from creating an exceptional life. Each and every one of us deserve to claim that exceptional life. And I will be here for you to coach you along the way, because let me tell you, every single woman deserves to rise up in her life. Whoop, whoop, we did it. Thank you so much for joining me on the She Finds Joy podcast today. I'm super honored to share this space with you, and I hope you learned something new and helpful. As always, this conversation will be continued in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to kimstrobel.com forward slash She Finds Joy to connect with other joy seekers just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time joining the show, Know that I am here every Wednesday with a brand new episode. 
So make sure you subscribe. Go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can go to that directly if you go to kimstrobel.com forward slash podcast. That will put you in Apple Podcast where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down just a little bit, you will be able to leave that five-star review and just leave me a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. It really helps me. If you let me know how the show has impacted you and how you are striving for more joy in your life, you might be nominated to be the Joyful Woman of the Week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more women unleash their happiness one daring day at a time. So please take a screenshot on your phone, share it out on social media, tag your friends, tag me at Kim Strobel Joy on Instagram or in our Facebook group, kimstrobel.com forward slash she finds joy. I'm quick to reply and I am super eager to send you some Facebook love. It makes my heart happy to be able to connect and surround myself with other women who are all ready to do this work. So thanks for being here and I'll be back next week. Until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you know that you are enough just as you are. Here's to finding more joy.